Hello, and welcome to another installment of our Unsolved Podcast series. This month, we're taking a break from focusing on unsolved mysteries to focus on Native American boarding schools. There's been a growing spotlight on the schools ever since the heartbreaking discovery of unmarked mass graves earlier this summer at boarding school sites in Canada. Their history is not well known. Michigan was home to three such schools in Barraga, Mount Pleasant, and Harbor Springs. And that's where our story begins. The Holy Childhood Boarding School opened in the late 1880s and closed in the mid-1980s after nearly a century. There were hundreds of schools like it all across North America. They were government-sponsored and run by various organizations, including religious ones, oftentimes the Catholic Church. But the education students got at these schools was hardly one you'd think of today. The goal of these schools was forced assimilation. That meant students were forced to learn English and forbidden from speaking their native language or practicing many of their Native American customs. And this was all done because the U.S. had what it perceived to be an Indian problem and wanted to wipe out Native American culture. And the schools were often the site of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse at the hands of those running them. That was the case at Holy Childhood, according to multiple survivors. There's no doubt some students had a good experience, but a vast majority did not. Kim Fike now lives in St. Ignace and attended the school from 1971 to 1974. I recently sat down with her to talk about the time she spent there. Tell me your first memories of Holy Childhood. Halloween. Um, one Halloween during dinner, the sister that took care of the young boys, her name was Sister Diane, she brought a black bear's head in on a silver platter and it was bleeding from its nose and telling us the devil was gonna get us, but she took it and she rubbed it all over one of the girls. And that night, going up to our bedroom, there was devil's powder poured all over the stairs and we were told don't touch it or the devil will get you. So we were all trying to walk, hold the railing and walk on the side of the steps um, and not touch it. So when we get to our bedroom, it's totally destroyed. We had to put our beds back together, find our mattresses, um, our clothing, our dressers, and our chair. That's all we really had um, before we could go to bed. So we're getting ready to get in bed, and she comes up with the front paw of the bear, and she's pulling all the hairs out of it and sprinkling it on our beds, telling us the devil was going to get us. Um, Halloween was the worst. They just like to terrorize us, come out as witches and goblins. And um, I do remember, and I've never told anybody this, the nun that took care of us. I don't know which year it was, but um, somebody had her by the throat and had her leaned over the third floor balcony. And all I could think of was push her, push her. Um, because then everything because of every, yeah, she she was mean. <laughs> um, there was a time they dropped us all off in the cemetery. All us little girls put us in the back of a truck and dropped us off in the night and made us find our way back. Of course, there's witches and goblins up there too to scare us and made, made us all run screaming through a cemetery where um, one of the girls I was with fell and cut her knee wide open on a, tombstone, on, yeah, on a tombstone. And by the time we got back to the school, 
the blood was dried on her leg and they wouldn't take her for stitches. Um, uh, another Halloween, I found a bone in my bed with my name written on it. Another sign the devil's gonna get you. That was one of their favorite things to tell us was the devil was gonna get you. And that's to be blunt, scare the crap out of you? Oh yeah. As a young girl? Oh, especially my first year because a big black object came rolling out from under the bed next to me and got under my bed and started pushing my mattress when all the big girls came running through um, from their dormitory sounding like a herd of buffalo. But they cut through her quarters, which also had a door into the smaller girls' room, so they ripped the sink right off the wall. They came through with such force. And then once again, there's devil powder all over the floor in our room, and they don't want to touch it, so they were bed hopping. So I was getting bounced from this side and bounced from that side. But I tried to stay as still as I could and pretend I wasn't there because I didn't really know what was happening. But when I finally peeked out, I seen that black object come rolling under my bed and that was it. I was covered up and kept quiet because I didn't want them to get me. <laughs> and this was not a game you guys were doing for fun. No. Playing around. This was... It was serious. Yeah, it was, it was terrifying. Um, I remember another time that we had a closet that we had to keep our bathrobes in and of course we were all numbers. Everything we owned had a number sewn on it, our socks, our underwear, our t-shirts, our dresses, our pants. Um, and of course in the closet you had to keep everything hung by number. So I was going to hang my um, bathrobe up one time and I seen a witch sitting at the bottom of the closet. But I didn't say anything, I just put my robe away and closed the door and I knew they were coming to get us at, you know, at bedtime. Were you known there as Kim, or were you known by your number? As Kim. Okay. As Kim. It's just the way to, I guess, they kept our belongings. Like when we had to go do laundry, when you're folding everything, you had to put it in numbers. When you first went there in 1971, did your parents explain why you were going there? Or was it explained to you at all why you were at this school? Unlike everybody else, I don't think there's anybody like me. Um, my mom died <clears throat> when I was eight. And my dad had to take care of me and he didn't know how. And like I had to come home from school because we lived out in Evergreen Shores at that time. I had to come home from school and just sit and wait till he came home. And he didn't know how to cook. I used to eat <laughs> tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches for dinner every night because that's all he knew how to make. I would sit by the heater to stay warm until he got home because I was lonely. Um, my older sisters had children there and I went with her down to visit. And to me, it looked like they were having a blast playing on the playground, bunch of kids, you know, and here I was lonely at home, so I begged to stay. And somehow between my sister, my father, and the nuns, they worked it out and I didn't even come back home that day. You talked a lot about Halloween yes. kind of seared into your memory. What do you remember about day-to-day -day life um, at the school? Well, you, we all had chores after school. We had to go to church. Um, 
I remember having to go to the kitchen and peel, I don't know how many bags of potatoes. And it seemed like forever you were peeling potatoes. Um, I used to have to do dishes. Um, we did, we did do some fun things, I think, like we went on nature walks and picked mushrooms and went to some camp where we got to sleep in um, cabins with bunk beds and do arts and crafts and stuff like that. But that's the best thing I can say about it. There's not a lot of good memories no. for you. Of well, it's not just what happened to me, but what I saw happen to other people. Like my stepbrother had uh, just had tubes put in his ears, and Sister Gonzalez was one of our teachers. She took a big old history book and just cracked him over the head with it, just after getting the tubes put in his ears. You know, I seen a lot of grabbing and pulling and throwing on the floor and. Um, my 12th birthday, I'll never forget that. Um, the nuns had this big bell at the bottom of the stairway between the dining room and, and the stairs that had, was coded and we had to, it, it was all written up what sister's code was what, but the nun that took care of me, sister um, Maxine at the time, she told me to go find sister Diane. She had a long distance phone call. Um, I went three stories in, into the basement from one end to the other and could not find her. So I came back and I said, I can't find her. And she grabbed a little wisp broom that you sweep your dirt into the dustpan and she hit me with it six times. Um, later that night at dinner time, they used to bring in a cake about this big to share with six of us that sat at a table. So she realized it was my birthday. So when we got up to go to bed at night, she goes, hey, Kim, come here. She goes, is today your birthday? And I said, yeah. And she goes, how old are you? I said, I'm 12. She said, well, I only hit you six times earlier. I'm going to hit you six more. And she did. She got the same broom and hit me six more times with it. On your birthday? On my birthday. Yeah. That's, and that is a memory that's never, the, never left you? No, no. It was not a happy birthday. <laughs> So there was emotional, yeah. but also physical abuse that happened yes. at this school. Yes. Um, I used to always hear the boys crying. There was like an infirmary for sick kids between the girls and the boys' room on the third floor. And I used to hear boys crying from in there all the time. But nobody was ever sick. I mean, like hurtful crying. I don't know if they were being beaten in there or being abused or sexually abused at that time, but I believe it. I do believe it. And I know there was other girls that had found bones with their names written on them in their beds during Halloween time. I just don't remember who, but I wasn't the only one. Did the nuns ever tell you why? Why the tricks on Halloween? why there was screaming in the infirmary, why Sister Maxine hit you no, 12 times? No, you would hear more of, Shh, sister's coming. Nobody would, you could hear their clicking on the hardwood floor and or their clearing of their throat, and we just didn't want to get beaten, <laughs> so nobody said anything. I mean, in our own little world out on the playground, when they weren't like right on us, we would say stuff to each other, but 
Otherwise, you were just treated like a military. Get in line, stay quiet. I remember one time uh, somebody supposedly, I don't know if it was true, but Sister Naomi told us that, or Sister Maxine, she went by two names, so I'm not sure which year it was, but um, she told us somebody stole money out of her wallet in her, in her quarters. And we all had, all us girls had to kneel on the hardwood floor in between the beds until somebody fessed up to taking it. Nobody said they took it. And we were there until we were falling over in pain because we couldn't kneel any longer. What do you remember about what the nuns looked like when they were doing this? Did they, what, what emotion were they showing? Ugly, ugly. I don't know if they had their own personal issues with being a nun or being brought to our school and not want to be there. I, I honestly don't have any reason why they would do those kind of things to children. I mean, none of us ever asked to get beaten. I mean, everybody knows a swat on the butt is a spanking, that's enough, you know. Our parents did that just to keep us in line, but not to be to the extent that, like I said, we didn't even take a, the one girl bleeding to death to the doctor. They showed no... No remorse. Mo yeah, remorse no. they didn't show. Mm -mm. Didn't show never heard I'm sorry, never heard I love you. And to this day, I don't eat chicken <laughs> because it seemed like that's all we ever got put on. And we had to pick the bone, or the meat off the bones, and I just can't go there. I smell it. Anybody in the area got chicken, I gotta leave. Can't do it. No, makes me sick to my stomach. Just the smell of it, and it doesn't matter how you cook it. When you went to these schools too, you were not learning. Native American culture. No. No. I mean, I remember uh, our spelling list and history, but it wasn't our history. Um, but at that time, I didn't know that because our history was already gone. My, my parent, my mother, she was the Indian. My dad was white, but I never heard our language. So. And you certainly didn't hear that holy child. No, no. Mm -mm. But in the meantime of me going there as a youngest of 10, but my older siblings were so much older, I was like the baby and only one home. Um, in 74, my father passed away. And so I came home for his funeral and I never went back. But in, in between 71 and 74, he married a woman who had kids in holy childhood. And so she had 12 kids and four of them were at home still, three boys and a girl. So they became my, my sisters and brothers while I was there. So your father's passing was your my breaking, way out, was way my out. way out, yeah. Well, I remember too, though, when we lived on the island, my 
mom and my stepmother and my father, they drank a lot. And so my dad never seemed to be a mean drunk, but I do recall him twisting her arm for whatever, trying to keep her in control for all I know. But I remember him twisting her arm. <coughs> Excuse me. And I, <coughs> us kids were scared. So we weren't running for the phone to call for help. And he grabbed a knife out of the sink or out of the drawer and cut the phone line in the kitchen. So we go running up the stairs and he beat us up there and he cut the line there too so we couldn't call for help. But I never seen him really hit her or anything like that. But it, After you left in 74, how long did it take for you to start talking about what had happened? I have always talked about it. You can ask anybody who's ever met me, you know, well, I've been up in Alaska for 40 years, but I've never hesitated to tell the horror stories that I remember. And people are always like, oh, I'm sorry. And it's like, well, thanks, but sorry's not enough. And nowadays with all the abuse with children and how it's all talked about and people are actually being charged with it and stuff like that. It's like, why didn't that happen for us? I, I don't understand that part at all. We were just under eighth grade. For me, I had never heard about Holy Childhood or even Native American boarding schools until about a year ago when everything started happening in Canada, when, when they started finding those mass graves up there. Why do you think this has been so quiet for so long? At least outside of the Native American community. I think they beat it into you. You just learn to pretend it didn't happen. Um, you don't want to remember that kind of stuff happened to you. And like I said, there was worse things. My, my, it didn't really happen to me, but it happened. And those people that it really happened to are either dead now, drank themselves to death, or are just aged and died. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that my two older sisters that were, I don't want to call them bad, but troublemakers or go in the wrong direction with alcohol and drugs. Marriage after marriage after marriage. I think it all stemmed from what happened there. And this was not abuse that happened just between, say, the 60s and the 70s. This was abuse that happened for generations. Oh, yeah to generations of Native American children. Yeah, I have a nephew right now that is pretty upset about all this being talked about because he remembers what his mother told him happened to her. Her being so much older than me, I never heard it from her. But I know it had to. I think, um, honestly, I think she had major hearing problems. And I think they actually broke her eardrums when she was young. Because one of their biggest things was to cup their hand and smack you like that. For no reason. Well, there might have been in their eyes a reason, but 
step out of line or talk when you shouldn't have or, you know. In our eyes, it was for no reason. As we sit here now in 2021, and you watch these stories come out from Canada and other boarding schools across the U.S., and now here in Harbor Springs, what's it like to watch these stories come out? It's very sad because, that, you know, we always thought it was just us. And here it is happening all over the world. And for so long, unbelievable how long this has been going on and everybody's kept it quiet. But I say the time is now, now that everybody's talking all over the world, I'm trying to get the people that I know were there when I was there to come forward and I'm sorry they won't. They just can't. No. And I, I part of me says I don't get it. <laughs> it's it's now. Time is now. But a lot of them don't and they won't. What do you hope can be accomplished from these stories coming out and being told? I want to see, and I'm probably going to be damned for this, but I would like to see the Sisters of Notre Dame be held accountable for what they did, along with the priest. I know they're probably half dead now, maybe a couple still alive, but it's still the, the name, Catholic priest, Sisters of Notre Dame. I think they owe us something. And it's more than just bringing our kids home. I want, the, I want to see that too. Because you know there are Native American children who died in uh, holy childhood and whose remains are there. Are still there yeah, and I've been thinking that ever since I found that bone in my bed. Because I believe it was, I don't know what you call the bone, between your knee and your ankle. It wasn't no animal. I know that for a fact. And then for them to even write their, you know, write your name on it made it more personal, which made it more scary. Especially for someone who's 12, 13 years old. Yeah. Or even, well, I was 10 when I first yeah. started, yeah. What would accountability mean to you? Lots and lots of money to rebuild our nation, our land, our houses. There's so many Indian people that don't even have a home. I'm renting and I, single, can't afford a home. $130,000, $50,000 here, you know? If anything, build us housing so that we can keep our little families together and, and teach them. And I don't think I'm wrong by saying that in any way, shape, or form either. Because for how many generations of Native American people here in the country has there been a tale of abuse mm -hmm. and neglect that's been told? Yeah, and they've been known it. They've, they've known for years that this is happening or has happened or was happening. And it's all just been pressed down to where nobody would talk. I have two granddaughters. I want them to know 
I haven't had the chance. They're just like 20 and 15. I want them to know and understand. Same with my daughter. I might not have been the best mother. Losing my mom, dealing with the stepmother, and then being raised by nuns that were not nice. <laughs> I do remember going to, I don't know what kind of group it was, but on Christmas we would go to a place, I think at a hotel in a banquet room or something, and Santa would come and give us presents. And it was all donated from the rich people there in Harbor Springs. And we loved it. I mean, we liked getting new clothes and stuff, but we always had to go to the playroom and write our thank you letters. You know, forced to do it, and everyone had to do it. There was no none missing ever. But I don't remember them ever letting us have anything that was ours. Nothing. And matter of fact, when I left there just to come home for my dad's funeral, I had this castle jewelry box. I just loved it. And uh, they wouldn't send me nothing. So. They tried to strip you of all. I guess outside possessions. Yeah. In a way. Mm -hmm. Well, even family, you know, they read your letters. You weren't allowed to say anything bad, or it wasn't being mailed. I don't recall getting any phone calls. And I, as far as visitation, I think they would, I don't know if they allowed it or if our family just showed up and they had no choice but to let us see them. Mm -hmm. But I only remember visiting in the entryway. I don't remember my sister seeing where my bed was. No family ever came into, oh, like, no. into the physical school. Not that I remember. I just remember that that entrance they have now being, that was your visitation room. That's where you got to sit and talk. It's been 50 years since you walked through that door. Yeah, I just realized that last night. When, when you're back there in Harbor Springs, <laughs> What do you think when you see that door, that archway? The archway doesn't bother me. The bell of the church does. Hearing that church bell just, I don't even know how to explain what it did to me. Made my heart jump a few times, I know that. Because you, that was the sound you heard daily, you know. That's a sound that never leaves you. No. And that was Kim Fike, a survivor of Holy Childhood Boarding School. Now it's important to remember, many times parents had no choice but to send their kids to these schools or risk losing government rations or subsidies. Linda Cobe has a similar story to Kim's. She attended Holy Childhood from 1964 to 1965, and she too remembers the abuse and fear felt by her and many other students. What's your first memory? Getting oh, to Holy Childhood. Getting to Holy Childhood. The long drive, for one thing, we had a van full of kids, and um, I still have fear going over the Mackinac Bridge. I remember laying on the floor of the van. I was so scared of the water and the bridge and how high up we were. And then um, getting there at the school, um, just the enormity of the building itself. It was three stories and brick, and uh, we had lived in um, tar paper shacks back home where we came from. 
and uh, but it, it seemed so far away from home, and um, I I didn't know what to expect, and it was kind of a scary adventure. Nobody told you what to expect going no. in. No, and when we got there then and got uh, shown around and, and our, where we were going to be living, uh, the dormitories, the whole building was divided by the boys' dorm and the women's dorm. And then the dorm itself would be broken into us for the younger girls and then for the older girls. And it seemed like I was in the younger part not for very long though, it seemed like a couple of months and then I got moved over to the bigger girls. But um, the worst part at the beginning was hearing all the other girls crying at night, sniffling and crying. Um, you tried to cry silently because they didn't need much of an excuse to beat, beat you for making too much noise or If they caught you it, crying, yeah. you, you knew what was coming. Yeah. You got caught crying. Yeah, and I think uh, the trauma of being there away from home, some girls were bedwetters and they would really get punished harshly. I remember one girl in particular, they made her scrub the bathroom floor with her toothbrush, the entire bathroom with her toothbrush for wetting the bed. And they were so strict. It was uh, the first time we actually, uh, we were so poor, we didn't have sheets or our own bed at home. So we had our own little bed there at Harbor Springs and um, you were expected to make it without a wrinkle in it every morning. And if, if it had a wrinkle in, they would come in their inspection and rip it apart. You'd have to do it again. If it was wrinkled again, you'd rip it apart and do it again until you got it right. Almost like the military. Yeah, exactly like the military. Very strict. So it's like you didn't know all the rules, but you kind of, they were going to teach you real quick and it seemed like you couldn't do anything, say anything. I remember getting slapped in the face for smiling at my cousin across the table. Just smiling? <laughs> yeah. Like, like uh, quit messing around, eat your food. And the food wasn't anything to brag about. Cornmeal mush every day. Every day? Every day. No and, nutritional value. And not yeah. that I can remember. And uh, I despise beets. And we had to clean our plate clean. And if we didn't, we got punished for that. Or beet or whatever. And uh, we, one of my cousins felt sorry for us. He was a little older. And he would always finish what we couldn't so we wouldn't get in trouble. Who was it that sent you to the boarding school? I don't, Back in yeah, I don't know if that was ever clear who, you know, it was a government policy and then they uh, contacted the Catholic Church had a lot to do with it and other denominations, but I think, I don't know if social services were, was involved in some way and um, we just knew that when the van showed up to pick up the kids, well, we'd run out in the woods and try and hide for a while, but that didn't really work. They'd wait until we came out and then, um, so it was the brothers and fathers, the priests, that would come and get us and transport us down there. The van, when the van showed up at your at, house, you yep, knew yep. where you were going. Yeah, they knew where we lived, how many were there, old enough for school age, and 
and our parents somehow just cooperated. I think they were powerless to do anything, you know, or coerced or withheld government rations or threatened with jail or whatever. They just kind of didn't put up a fight and just kind of accepted the fact they were going to take your kids. What do you remember about day-to-day -day schooling there? Oh. Um, I don't have a whole lot of memories. It seems like uh, I think it may have been so traumatic that uh, I don't have a whole lot of memories. I remember going, I remember every day, you know, we had our little routine. We'd have to get up, get ready, and uh, line up. And then we marched downstairs to go to church next door and then back to the building for classroom teachings. And uh, we all had our chores. And uh, I guess there was a playground outside we, we would get to play with. But um, interestingly, my brothers were there at the same time. And I don't have many memories of even seeing them at the same table eating. Or I don't know why. I can't remember them being there. But they were. I found records that they were there, too. Same. And you guys were all, did you all have to dress the same, have the same hairstyle uh, when you were there? Yeah, yeah, they cut off, they cut everyone's hair short, boys and girls. And they assigned us our clothes. And um, you only had so many outfits to wear. I don't know, it seems like our name was written in the back or number, I don't know. But uh, yeah, we were expected to look a certain way. And behave a certain way. Yeah talk a certain way, look a certain way, and you don't dare um, challenge the authority there, the nuns. There was no Native American culture either? No, that you no. remember? No, no. There was no. song? It was forbidden, language. forbidden, yeah. They didn't want you to have anything that reminded you of home, like, uh, well, when they came and got us, they said, okay, go get your things, you're going with them. And, um, well, we didn't have anything to go get, really. We didn't have toys back then. We didn't, our parents didn't have money. We didn't have birthday parties or Christmas. And um, so I just grabbed a couple of my things and put it in a paper bag. And when we got there, they took them and I don't know what they did with them, burned them or what. But um, if people had, if kids brought toys from home, they took that from you and you weren't allowed to have it or see it. Unless your parents came at Christmas and they'd give it to you and they, like you had all along. So. so your parents would see you? My parents wouldn't. Away. We lived uh, about five hours away okay. and they were so poor. I don't even know if they had a car. They could have never afforded to come down and see us. They didn't have a phone or they didn't have cameras to take pictures. So I hardly have any pictures of myself when I was little. How did you finally get out of there? After uh, one year? Well, one year, and then when I went back home, my parents had already split up, and social services was uh, scrutinizing the family really hard, and they said that my dad wasn't capable of taking care of that many kids, so my sister and I got put out into foster care, which was a nut. We got adopted. I got adopted by a white family, and my sister did also in the same town. And they pretty much were, they acted like, um, like they expected us to act like little white kids. And 
um, I think they were so threatened by my by my background, my family, that they thought my family was going to come and steal me away from them. So we weren't allowed to hang out with our cousins or anything like that. No contact with my mom and dad or brothers wasn't allowed in the family I was with. So that it was almost like a continuation of what boarding school was, you know, forbidding your culture, or you practicing any customs or. Even and after you got out, your culture yeah, was right. silenced. Yeah, I was going to ask if you considered that lucky to be sent to Where? foster care because you oh. got out of the boarding school. Oh. It was just. It, yeah, there, it was mixed emotions because um, they were a middle class family. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, we didn't have any toys at home, but they, I was their only child, so they spoiled me rotten. And dolls and toys and bikes and books and. But it didn't help the loneliness of being away from my family. And my adopted dad was an alcoholic, so he was pretty abusive for years, and sexually abusive for years. And, and so I just couldn't wait to get out of that house and turn 18 and find my parents and find my roots again. So the abuse continued just in a different way? Yeah. Yeah. What did you start thinking when you heard about everything happening in Canada? Oh. that has started to shine a spotlight on what happened at Holy Childhood. I was ecstatic that it was finally coming out and, and I thought, um, why Canada? First, the United States started the boarding school institutions before Canada did. And, but I, I was, and how far they had gotten, I know it took a long while, but to reach their truth and um, reconciliation policy that they did and reparations and uh, that the truth was finally being exposed and I thought I holding out hopes and then when uh, the Biden administration selected a native native woman I really you know we're all putting our hopes in that that her initiative will bring the truth out and and start the healing and justice and reconciliation I kind of asked him the same question, but I want to ask you a question too. What's it like to watch it finally come out? Oh. You've known about this for so long, yeah. but I think the greater population, even though Holy Childhood was open until the 1980s, it was the last one, I believe, in the United States to close, the last boarding school to close. A lot of people up here, I don't think, know that story. Oh, yeah. What's it like to watch this story come out and also tell your story? It's, it's pretty profound because I did write my autobiography and I talk about the boarding school in there in one chapter, but um, though I self-published so it's not really out there on Amazon and all that. And, but those who read it and bought it and support me, they, a lot of the feedback I got back was um, they didn't know, they weren't aware, and I was really astounded in this day and age that people weren't aware of our history especially something that happened so recently. Yeah, they think it We're was... We're talking about something in yeah, the 1800s. Right. We're talking about something right. within the last 40 years. Well, the biggest thing of it is the impact that boarding school did to generation, the intergenerational trauma, the unresolved grief, and then we carry that burden and pass it down to our kids. You know, our parenting skills are lacking. Um, there's so many social ills wrong on the reservations and it's all due 
to that boarding school trauma. A lot of it can be traced believe. back to that, that entire system, yeah. that entire boarding school system. Mm -hmm. After the wars quit, and then they did that to assimilate the, and to get the land. Those, I don't want to ask this question. <laughs> oh, we talked a little bit about it last Sunday, just kind of the Native American culture being reinvigorated oh, yeah. and re-energized yeah. um, through this mm -hmm. coming out. Yeah. What's that like? to oh. watch the culture come alive oh, again after, for generations, yeah. the goal of these boarding schools yeah. was to silence yeah. that culture. It's so healing and empowering to uh, do, be able to do all the things that were stolen from us, that were forbidden, like growing your hair long, practicing your customs, speaking the language, learning the language again. It's, it, it's healing, and that's what we need right now. We, we need to heal. The story is far from over. Right. Right. A lot of work to do. What does healing look like for you and for tribes across Michigan and the country that are getting this story out there finally? Well, for me, it's um, giving me some pride that I can feel proud of who I am because for years, uh, I was always taught to be ashamed of who I was, and it, it, when you're forced to be something that you're not, it's um, it's hard to live a life and it's so not you. You know, you can. It's a free. It's like a freedom to be who you were meant to be, and for our communities to heal, there's. There's so much that needs to be done um, in the healing process and, and start to address all of the alcoholism and addictions and domestic violence and housing shortage, shortages like uh, Kim was talking about, um, you know, to give that back to our youth and, and have them feel proud again. It's got to feel good to be proud again. It is. And not have to pretend to be what you think nuns or priests or the government wants you to be. Yeah. I also see that it's not for everyone. Not everyone wants to share their story. I think a lot of uh, indigenous feel assimilated into the white culture mainstream and uh, they're okay with that, you know, but you have to respect where they're, where everyone is at. And what do you think when you look at Holy Childhood now? Oh. Uh, I've been down in this neck of the woods for like 15 years. I grew up in the western end of the UP. And when I moved down here, uh, we got, uh, in the western end, you get Channel 6 news out of Marquette. Well, down here, they get 9 and 10 news out of Traverse City. And I started hearing Harbor Springs. And for some reason down there, you don't hear that. Anytime I hear the word Harbor Springs, it just takes me right back to the boarding school of holy childhood. So I was hearing that it was like PTSD. I kept hearing Harbor Springs on the news, and I didn't think of it as the town of Harbor Springs. I always thought of it of holy childhood and what went on there, the torturous day after day, thinking you're never going to get out of there, and and the loneliness of missing <laughs> missing your family and um, 
the effect that it had on us. Uh, my two older brothers went and my younger sister, and they're all gone now. They're all gone, and they didn't get to see this. They didn't get to see um, it all coming out and went th what they went through. They died young. All, all, and that, uh, Harbor Springs had a lot to do with it. It's such a contrast to hear somebody say that. Because I think a lot of people hear the word Harbor Springs and they think mm -hmm. the picturesque summer yeah. getaway that Money. everybody goes to. Yeah, the tourists. where a lot of elite yeah. people go to. But you have a much, when you say that the name of that town, it's a much different connotation yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's still painful. And that was Linda Cope, a survivor of Holy Childhood Boarding School in Harbor Springs. In part two of our podcast, we'll introduce you to a woman working to help survivors like Linda and Kim work towards healing. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Unsolved Podcast. I'm David Lydon.